Well, he came on a special Sunday because today is our 11th month anniversary. Happy 11 months, Mission Church. Come on. That's, that is special. In the 11 months that we've been at church, we've seen almost 400 people get saved. and That's just not normal. And I never want to normalize when God is breathing on a miracle. And what Mission Church is, it's not a man thing. It's not a, an idea thing. I believe it's a God thing. And I believe that he has moved our church in so many venues in so many months. Uh, and he is preparing something that I believe that 400 is just a breadcrumb of what we're really going to see God do in the next 30 years of Mission Church. Can I get an amen for that? Well, if you uh, weren't here last week, I'm going to dive into the message because it's going to be uh, beefy in a good way. Uh, who doesn't like beef? Who loves beef? Come on now. You can be a vegetarian, but when it comes to the Bible, you better love some beef, okay? Uh, we're in a series titled Moments. Moments. I've never said that for the platform. That was weird. Uh, we're in a series titled Moments. We started it last week, and it was birthed out of this verse in Psalm 90, uh, verse 12. And it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist is crying out, saying, God, remind me that my life is but a breath. Oh, it's but a moment. Oh, may my life, may I make it count. And what I would submit to you today is that the sooner you realize that your life is but a moment, built for moments to make eternal moments, you'll start living differently. You'll start praying differently. You'll start having different things affect you that didn't affect you before. You won't be stressed out about the normal things and you'll actually start living for the things you're supposed to live for. Start praying Psalm 90, 12 over your, uh, over your life. Oh, teach me God, my life. When you're worrying about tomorrow, go to Matthew 6 and see what Jesus says. He says, don't worry about tomorrow's moments, live today's moments. The wisest man in the Bible that Jesus credits it to is Solomon. Of course, Jesus is the wisest of the wise, but besides him, there's this man named Solomon and he writes this in Ecclesiastes. It says this, and basically he's saying there's a moment for everything, but you need to know what moment you're in. Here's what it means by that. To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born. I'm going to replace time with moment, just so you understand what we're trying to do here. A moment to die, a moment to plant, a moment to pluck what is planted, a moment to kill, a moment to heal, a moment to break down, a moment to build up, a moment to weep, a moment to laugh, a moment to mourn, a moment to dance. Some of you, you went through a hard season, and the Lord's saying, stop mourning. It's time for you to dance again. There's this moment where Samuel's bawling his head off and the Lord goes, come on. It's good to weep, but you can't stay weeping. Weeping may last for the night, but the next moment is joy in the morning. And when we go through a hard time, mourning cannot be the climate of our life. God wants to enter into your mourning, but he wants to walk you out of that valley and then have you dance again. To have you proclaim that what happened in the valley will not define my life. Goes on to say that there's a moment to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a moment to embrace, a moment to refrain from embracing, a moment to gain, a moment to lose, a moment to keep, a moment to throw away, a moment to tear, a moment to sow, a moment to keep silent. Some of you talk too much. You need to be silent. That's what my wife would tell me. Come on now. Good morning. It is 7 a.m., a moment to be silent. Some of you, though, I, I will say this, that even where you work, it's, it's time to be silent and let your testimony be more important than your title. That your life would show the name of Jesus and then when you get your opportunity, people would say, that's why you are the way you are. 
Some of you, it's time to speak up. You've been hiding behind that, actually, that mantra. I just let my actions speak from our words. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. Some of you need to speak up in this season. It is a moment for you to speak up. Goes on to say, a moment to tear, a moment to sow, a moment to keep silent, a moment to speak, a moment to love, mm. a moment to hate, a moment of war, and a moment of peace. I'm not sure in this room, but if we pulled the room and gave the microphone to each person, you would find out that everybody is living in a different moment. Some of you are in a moment that your moment right now, you gotta fight. You gotta fight for your kids. You're praying for your kids right now. You're fighting for your family. You're fighting for your character. You're fighting for your life. And right now, it's a moment to fight. Some of you, it's a moment to mourn. Right now, if you, if you could give, get the microphone and say, hey, if you knew what I'm going through as a family, right now, we just need people to rally around us and mourn with those who mourn. As a young kid, my dad taught me how to steward moments. You don't, again, you just don't wake up and realize how to steward a moment. I remember being a kid trying to play tag in the hospital, and my dad was like, no, you don't play tag in a hospital. People are sick here, respect what's happening here. I remember being in a movie theater and talking loud, and my dad says, you gotta understand, no, no the room, there's people in the room, son. When you talk, you're stealing from everybody else's moment of watching the movie. And as I grew up, I learned how to steward moments, big and small. And the title of my message today is, don't miss your moment. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't miss your moment. It's birthed out of Esther, and Esther right now does not know that she is in a moment. Not only does she not know she's in a moment, she's in a big moment. Mordecai, her cousin, who is 15 years older, roughly uh, 15 years older than uh, Esther, raised Esther. Esther's parents died at a young age, so not only is Mordecai a cousin, but Mordecai is a father figure. And Mordecai uh, writes her this uh, response back to her, and this pinnacle of the story of Esther, which we're going to look at the whole thing, but I want to read you the pinnacle of the story, and it's this amazing moment. Esther's going, I'm in the palace. I don't want to mess with this stuff. That's not my moment. But Mordecai goes, no, no, no. Let me teach you. This is your moment, and it's a big moment. Esther 4.12 says, this is the common English Bible. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther. Don't think for one minute that unlike any of the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you are in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place. But you and your family will die. But who knows? Everybody say, who knows? Maybe it was for a moment like this that you came to be a part of the royal family. Maybe, just maybe, you're alive for this moment in the East Bay region. Maybe, just maybe, you're alive for a moment like this, the least church region in all of the US, and you live in it. The least amount of people saved in this region, 10 million people in the Bay Area, and it's the lowest amount of people that know the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, you were born for such a time as this. Now you need to understand something about Esther. Persia is where she's located. Now, Persia has a capital named Susa. Within Susa, she's in the palace that's 120 feet above Persia. So you have Persia, the capital, and then the palace. Everybody wants to be in the palace. Well, in America, we have America. California, where everybody wants to be. Let's just keep it real. Persia, Susa, palace. America, California. You need to know something. You live in the Bay Area, you in the palace. 
You are in one of the most populated places on the planet, influencers upon influencers, finances above finances, and I believe if this region awakens, it will shake the world. There are types of people here that I've never met before, type A people that you say, you can't go through that wall, I just see them walk through it. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And I'm thinking, if God gets his hands on that person, oh my goodness, Satan's gonna say, you can't walk through this wall, and that person goes, ah, 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 ah. God created me to walk through walls. My prayer tonight is that you would actually see yourself in the palace. Rachel and I were out of town for a few days visiting my parents, and we met a couple from St. Louis. They're like, where are you from? I said, oh, we're from the Bay Area, Walnut Creek. They're like, oh, I've been there. You're in the Bay Area. Oh, it must be hard. How's Napa? Huh? You ever been to Half Moon Bay? Yeah. How's Half Moon Bay? I was like, they were doing it sarcastically. I was like, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? They're like, yeah, we live in St. Louis, not the palace, okay? But here's the problem when you live in the palace. A lot to lose. It's a lot to lose. And so instead of living out your moment, we usually spend most of our time trying to keep what we have, and our moment flies by us. Years of us trying to build wealth when God's calling us to build the kingdom. Years we chase a title when God's trying to have us live out our testimony. You can learn from your fathers or you can learn from failures. You can learn from your mothers or you can learn from mistakes. And what you're going to see in this teaching today is Esther learns from her father. Mothers and fathers will put you on the fast track. I didn't grow up in a healthy home as a broken home and I saw other friends just on the fast track of life. Everything, playing hoops are in the academy for hoops. They're getting set up with SATs, coaches and everything. I got none of that. I go to SATs. Me think this is the right answer. Just keeping it real. My prayer tonight is that some of you would own the responsibility of being a father to a generation that desperately needs you to be a father. And some of you tonight would say yes to being a mother to a generation that desperately needs mothers. And to some of you, you need to say yes to some mentors this season because your moments need mentors. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you give us this amazing word that, oh, it challenges us, it inspires us, it shows your love for your people, it shows your power, it shows your authority, it shows the bigness of God, if I could use those words. So God, as we see your sovereign hand on this story of Esther, may we understand that your sovereign hand is on our life. May we not be stressed out about tomorrow because you are the author and we are just the pen. May we surrender, may we put the pen of our life into the best author's hands and have you write the story and the masterpiece that you called for us to live. And Lord, may my words fall to the floor tonight. And may your words soar. Oh, we need you, Jesus, we need you. And everybody said? Let's get to work, let's get to work. I, uh, I kind of want to set this story up. There's going to be a lot of context in the very beginning, so I hope that's okay because we're going to teach from the pinnacle of the story of Esther. The, the absolute pinnacle where Esther goes, if I must die, I must die. Where she goes, if I must perish, I must perish. It's one of the most epic moments in all of the Bible. But how did she get to that moment? So I want to kind of give you an overview of the first three chapters that leads us to chapter four. And also, I want to kind of give you an overview of the four main players in this story. So the, one of the first main players in the story is a man named Xerxes, King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes, there's this moment in the story where 
um, Esther's like, well, if I go in, like, I haven't seen him for 30 days, he could kill me. And you're like, I'm like, how bad can this guy really be? Like, what is, what is Xerxes really like? Let me kind of give you the ethos of Xerxes. He is an erratic leader. He can be unbelievably kind or unbelievably severe. He can reward somebody like Mordecai that saved his life, put him on the king's horse, have him put in robes, and have him be praised by people. That's an unbelievably kind gesture by Xerxes. But he also can be unbelievably ruthless. There's a historian, Herodotus, a Greek historian, and they share a story about when Xerxes was trying to conquer the Greeks, he needed to build a bridge across the channel near the Black Sea in the Mediterranean. And so the engineers are building this bridge over this channel and a storm comes and shatters all the bridges. Xerxes is furious. He takes the engineers and blames them and has all of them beheaded. And you think that wouldn't be ruthless enough, he takes his soldiers and says, hey, take your whips, go out into the ocean, and I want you to lash the ocean 300 times for being insubordinate to King Xerxes. So soldiers are in the ocean, lashing the ocean 300 times, saying, do not be insubordinate to King Xerxes. And then you think, that's not crazy enough. King Xerxes has them heat up pokers, a little hot pokers, and then stab the ocean with the hot pokers to let them know who's the boss. And then gives the soldiers shackles to bind the ocean to say never to do it again to the bridges. This is King Xerxes, and this is why Esther had a little bit of a hesitancy walking into a room with that kind of behavior. Then you have a man named Haman. Haman is a descendant of Agag. Now, if you don't know why that's a big deal, is Agag was found in 1 Samuel, and it was this people group that was absolutely slaughtering and destroying people, kids and children. So God sends God's people to stop these people, and Samuel actually kills the king. Samuel is the, the prophet of this time, the priest, and he slaughters the king Agag to pieces. So Haman he knows about his family's history. He hates the Jews. And isn't it fascinating that God loves, uh, God loves to use salvation and redemption so we would go love people. He loves us so we love people. But the enemy loves to use wounds to control people, offenses. And so Haman is this man of influence and he hates the Jews and wants to use influence to hurt the Jews. And then you have Mordecai. Mordecai is this man who understands the long game, understands that he's living in a place where Jewish people aren't really that loved, but at the same time, Mordecai just has some core values that he can't budge on. You'll find out that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman, but Mordecai mentors Esther to become this queen, and Lydia teaches her and coaches her along the way, because every moment she had a mentor, and his name was Mordecai. And then you have Esther, this Jewish girl, finds herself in the most unlikely place, and you may not be amazed by this, but again, you are in the most unlikely place in the sense that out of all the places in the whole world you could live and steward your life, you are in the Bay Area. Six billion plus people, and you're here. This is not an accident. You'll find out that Esther, when she was chosen, there was 25 million women. They could have chosen any of them, but she was the one because I believe God's hand was on her life to be in the palace like God's hand has been on your life to be in the Bay Area. And so let's pick up Esther 1 real quick. I'm giving context. We're almost there to the message. Esther 1 starts with uh, King Xerxes has just come off of a great victory. The Egyptians wanted to rebel, and King Xerxes won that battle, stopped the rebellion. So he decides to throw this 180-day banquet followed by a seven-day party. So basically, Xerxes wins, comes back, and just picture a frat boy party on steroids, okay? 
It is drunken orgy. Just, it's got to paint the picture. This is what's going on. The men are in one room, the women, they would call the women in. This is what's going on for 180, won the war. Hey, let's have a frat party. How long? 180 days, because I'm King Xerxes. You know what? Add another seven days on it. And so at the end of this big old frat boy party on steroids, he calls for Queen Vashti as queen. He wants to show her off to all the men. Queen Vashti, being a woman of dignity, says, man, I, I know that this is the wrong place for me to be in. I don't know if I'm going to be ridiculed or not be respected. Um, some uh, theologians and historians believe that actually she's pregnant with Xerxes' child at this moment, so maybe she didn't want to come because she's pregnant. But bottom line, she doesn't come, and she does disrespect the king's orders. And so what happens is King Xerxes ticked, banishes Vashti. Two years goes by, he goes and fights the Greeks, not successful, not doing very well. So uh, Esther 2, we pick this up about two years later. We just read Esther 1 to 2 thinking it's overnight. It's actually a two-year span between Esther 1 and 2 of what's happening in Xerxes' life. Xerxes is failing against the Greeks, so he comes back. His advisors want to cheer him up and say, hey, you need a new queen. And so they have this fascinating idea. And just so you know, who watches The Bachelor? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of people that are not ashamed. Okay? Some people are unashamed of the gospel. Some people are unashamed of The Bachelor. Hey, if you watch The Bachelor, yes! I watch The Bachelor. Yes, I do. Okay? You better be that proud of Jesus. Come on now. If you've never seen The Bachelor, it's only been on for about 27 seasons, okay? Uh, but it's been on since I was a kid, I think. The Bachelor idea was not actually originated by, is it on NBC or ABC? ABC? NBC? ABC. <laughs> I said ABC. No, NBC, dum-dum. Okay, NBC, okay? It's on NBC. ABC. <sighs> so it's on Fox, is what you're telling me. <laughs> CBS. I'm kidding. ABC. ABC. I got it. Thank you. I'm... It was a group effort. It's on ABC. Maybe I've watched a few seasons. Maybe Sean's my favorite Bachelor, whatever, okay? <laughs> Sean and Catherine, she's from Seattle. Shout out. Anyways, so the ABC creators decided to have a show where they would have a handful, I think it's 20-something ladies come in, and then the Bachelor would have a rose, and he would give roses out, and then the one with the final rose would be the winner of the Bachelor. This was not originated at ABC. Uh-uh, the OG Bachelor Xerxes, okay? And the OG winner of the Bachelor is Esther because the advisors come to Xerxes and say, hey, I want to cheer you up. We want to find you the prettiest young virgin in all the land. So they take the 25 million that are in Persia, narrow them down to 400. 400 women are on this show of The Bachelor. They bring them on to the show of The Bachelor and they say, here's the deal. You're going to take a whole year to get your hair done and your nails done, get your everything done, so in a year when you meet the king, you have one night to impress him. And whoever has the final rose is the next queen. There is no rose in this, by the way. Okay, read the Bible. So the girls get their hair did, their nails did, you know what I'm saying? And after this process, one is left standing, and her name is Esther. This is an amazing moment. It says that Esther was beautiful and charming. It says that she found favor with the king. I want you to hear this real quick. I believe that if you're somebody who has favor with people, it's not because you're amazing. God gave you the favor with people. Esther was given beauty, charm, and favor for this moment, I believe, for her life. If you have a gift, stop taking credit for it and realize God has been using it to get you where you are. 
Catch this real quick. If you're great with finances, this is not an accident. God created you to be great at finances, to use you to impact the kingdom with finances. If you're great with people, it's not because you're just charming and nice. God wants to use that so you can be an evangelist for his kingdom. If you've raised up in the workplace, it's not because you're awesome at work. Stop taking credit for your talents. God has elevated you to your palace so he can use you just like he's going to use Esther. Esther 3 comes along. Now Haman introduced to the story. He is a man of pride, wants people to bow down to him. And so people are bowing down to him. He has a lot of authority. He uses authority for his own power and promotion and then also his own agenda. Mordecai will not bow down. Haman, the Agagite, Agagite, if you want to pronounce it correctly, Agagite, says, all right, I'm not only going to kill Mordecai. I want to kill all the Jews. I'll never forget about eight years ago, a movie came out called The Purge. And I was like, who in the world would write a movie about a purge? And the ethos of this movie is basically one day in the nation, everybody can do whatever crime they want, and you can kill anybody you want, and you get away with it. Again, this is not an original idea. Haman is actually the one who thought of this. He comes to the king and says, we should have a day to purge all the Jews. And here's how the enemy works. He uses two things with King Xerxes. These Jewish people, they're dangerous. Their history shows they're dangerous to nations. So he uses fear to control the king. Second thing he does, he says, not only that, we'll take all the money from the Jews and we'll give the treasury a ton of it, a bunch of money. So the enemy tries to control King Xerxes with fear and money. And you need to know something. If you're being controlled by fear and money, that is not the Lord. If you are making decisions every week about money or what you're afraid of, or what you're afraid of losing, or whatever your fear is, this is not the way the Lord directs your steps. He directs your, it's kindness that leads us to repentance. His love compels us in Corinthians. Come on now, the, the sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit, it says in Romans. You are not going to be led by money or fear, but this is what the enemy is using to lead Xerxes. Xerxes sounds, sounds like a good idea to me. Let's have a purge. Let's, let's have a lot of money. Gives him the signet ring, boom. Has the king's signet ring on it. Not only did Haman want to kill the Jews, all the way to Israel, not only in Persia, they were everywhere. This takes place between Ezra and Nehemiah's time also. It's a fascinating moment in history throughout the Bible. There's so many connected things in this story. And so writers go out throughout all of the nations, wherever there are Jewish people, all the way out to Israel, and says, here is the king's decree on this date, on this day, you're permitted by the king to kill and steal everything from the Jews, mourning throughout the land. And now we're going to pick up the story in Esther 4, and we're going to see that, oh, we're going to learn not to miss our moment because we're going to watch Esther at the pinnacle of her life. This is her moment. This is her moment to step up. Now, I'll just be honest. This is a fascinating thing about Esther. Esther has kept her identity secret, opposite of what Daniel did in the Bible. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, Daniel was loud about his faith, so I'm going to be loud about my faith. Daniel did everything right. Esther did not do everything right, but God still used Esther. Stop putting God in a box, thinking this is the only way that he does it. Esther proves us that God is not a one-size-fits-all kind of God. Esther slept with a guy before she was married. Esther was somebody who you see throughout the whole book, God is actually not mentioned once. Fasting is, which again, you fast because you're praying. Esther is this fascinating case study where you see that God will use anybody for his glory. Don't disqualify yourself. Here we go. 
So let's look at Esther 4. This is where it's going to get good. Everybody tracking with me? All right. Esther 4, Esther 4. So this is where it picks up now. Mordecai is mourning. Let's see what happens. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out in the city crying with a loud and bitter wall. Is this on the screens? Fantastic. Okay. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was a great mourning among the Jews. They fasted and wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Refused it. Stop. Esther is learning how to steward a moment. Mordecai is sad. I'm the queen. I'm rich. Go give him new clothes. Give him gifts. The first thing you have to realize in your moment is you have to diagnose what you're supposed to do in those moments and learn from these moments. When I got married, I'll be honest, when my wife and I would get in an argument, I thought this moment was so I could win the argument. Oh, you want to argue? Okay, I'm a great arguer. You know? And so I'd argue, but then I realized when my wife is upset, it is not a moment for me to win the argument. It's actually a moment for me to hear a need that my wife is telling me that I need to meet. And all the women said, amen. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. Second thing I found out in marriage, I found out when my wife was sad, she didn't need me to fix it. I just needed to be sad with her. I remember seeing, <laughs> I got some amens right here, okay? Um, <laughs> I remember seeing a marriage video, and it totally made sense to me. There was a woman, and she had a nail in her forehead. And she was telling her husband, oh, my forehead hurts so bad. And the husband's trying to take the nail out. She's like, will you just listen to me? I want to tell you how it feels. But us guys, we want to fix the situation in a second. Sometimes your moment, you're not supposed to fix anything. You're just supposed to be present. I'm learning these things in my marriage and still learning them. As a pastor, I've had moments where I've tried to be all things to everyone, and i failed everyone. And I've learned now that my purpose as a pastor is to please the Lord like crazy and to point you to Jesus. And so as we go on, I want you to catch this real quick. You're going to have moments, even this week, where when you try the first thing and you realize it doesn't work, don't quit. That's what I love about Esther is she tries sending a gift. It doesn't work. She's brand new to the moment. She doesn't understand how sad he is. And so let's, let's see what happens. Does, does Esther quit or does she keep going? Let's learn from Esther. Then Esther said, Hathak, Hathak. I always um, read Bible names and you're like, that one's not going to stick around. Um, we know some Esther's in the room, but uh, Hathak, is there any Hathaks in the room? If so, I'm sorry, okay? We're going to call you Hattie, all right? Um, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had, been, uh, who had been appointed as her attendant, she ordered him to go to Malachi and find out what was troubling him. And why he was in mourning. One of the greatest things, so you won't miss your moment, is you need to be engaged with people around you. You have to have margins for your moments. We're in such a rush walking past people that are crying out. And for you even to know how to steward a moment and to have a moment and impact somebody and be a moment for them, you got to be able to stop and ask questions. And people know when you're in a rush. People know when you actually want to hear how they're doing. People know if you really actually do care. We're, 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 I always feel like people think I'm dumber than I am, and then I sometimes uh, feel like I treat people uh, that they're dumber than they think they are, like they're smarter than that. We have to come to this conclusion that people are more intuitive than we think. They know when you care. They know if you really want to talk. You've got to be willing to ask questions to the ones that are mourning. 
goes on and she asks this question, goes, find out what's troubling him and why he's mourning. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. This is not Haman's plan. This is Satan's plan. Satan, from the beginning of time, has been trying to wipe out the Jewish people, wipe out the church, so that God's promises cannot come to fruition. But Satan keeps trying, and Satan keeps failing. Come on now. Goes on, he says, he asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the province know, she's like pointing out the obvious, they know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter, basically pardoning the person for being disobedient. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Stop. We have to understand that Xerxes was not alone for these 30 days. He had uh, concubines. He had other women. So you don't know if they're even on good terms. He's saying, she's saying, hey, I get you want me to go to Xerxes, but if I go, that's against the rules and he could kill me. One of the biggest things you need to understand that if you don't want to miss your moment is a lot of your moments are going to be wrapped in inconvenience. They are going to be wrapped in full inconvenience because we say this all the time. God, use me. Here's my schedule. I budgeted you in for about 15 minutes, Monday through Friday. Those 15 are yours. Let's have some miracles happen. Let's go. And so God wants to use us, but the problem is, is that when the, actually the moment happens, we see it as an inconvenience, and no way could inconvenience be God actually trying to use us for a moment. We package the inconvenience as God saying, well, no, God's moments will always be convenient. That can't be the moment God wants to use for me. No, actually, your moments are going to have these big old walls and people that are annoying and people who are unloving and people who actually don't receive it well right in front of you. Your moments will cost you. A lot of people miss their moment because they don't want to pay the price. The financial price, the time price, the energy price, the messy price, the risk price, whatever it is, your moments are going to have a cost. I heard a story about a man who got a new car and people came out. He's kind of sensitive about people like, it wasn't the nicest car, it's a car, but you know, church people can kind of judge your car. I've heard uh, from a lot of pastors, they'll never judge your house, Tyler, but they'll judge your car because everybody has a house, but they'll judge your car. So drive a, d- a decent car, but not a really nice car. Thanks, okay? I drive a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Hope that's okay. All right. Um, just keeping it real. Just keep it real. We're going to stay in the Jeep family for the rest of our life, okay? If you drive a nice car, I love it. I celebrate it. I think nice cars are great, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, so this guy gets a nice car, and people are looking at it like, oh, nice car. And he goes, this is the Lord's car. This is the Lord's car, blessed by it, love it, but it's the Lord's car. All right, awesome, man. Like, we're just saying nice car, relax, sensitive. Called church wounds, okay? Um, Gets into service, and a person in service is sitting there. Remembers, I got to pick up. The missionary after church, there's a missionary flying in that's uh, going to be visiting our church next Sunday, and I don't have a car. But I remember that guy said that he has the Lord's car. So he goes to the guy and says, hey, can I borrow the Lord's car to go pick up the missionary? And the guy goes, bro, that's my car. You can't use my car. And boom, full circle. Listen to this. I want you to catch it real quick. It's your life. 
all this. My life is your life, God. This is, your, this is yours. Everything I have, it's yours. My, my energy, my time, my finances, all of it's yours, God. Tyler, go over here. This is my life. I got plans today, Lord. I'm not going over there. This, I know I said it was yours, but really it's mine. And a lot of us declare, oh, it's all the Lord's. But the first sign of inconvenience will show you if your life is God's or if it's yours or if it's the world's. You've got to decide. Just like Esther in this moment. This isn't for me to fight. It's inconvenient. I'm sorry. Go tell Mordecai how inconvenient this is and maybe he'll back off. I believe that our church is going to be inconvenienced. And man, if we actually embrace the inconvenience of people and realize that people are not in the way of the mission, but they are the mission, that people aren't getting in the way of the priority, but people are the priority, that the things that we love, people aren't getting in the way of them. Actually, the things that you should love are the people that are on the way to the things that you think you love. The hobbies and the activities that you're trying to get to, you're walking through the most priceless thing on the planet, the thing that God literally died for, the thing that he died for that we're supposed to invest in, you're walking past relationships because you want to get to something else that you think is more valuable. No, 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 you're missing it. Oh, my prayers is that when you start to live this week that you wouldn't miss your moment because I believe one of the greatest things that you can do is be a moment for somebody else. My grandma was my moment. My grandma over and over again, we were in the car. She was intentional. She'd come pick up her grandson and take him on a ride and take him to a little Dairy Queen and just tell him about Jesus all the time. I literally got saved probably 21 times as a kid. 21 times. I, I'll be honest. I got saved the first time, though. I believe it. I was four. I remember asking the Lord into my heart. It didn't matter. Every time I went to church, every time I went to a Christian play, Scrooge, it didn't matter. She was kicking my tail up to the front. He needs to get saved. But I look back at my life and I go, the moments I live now would have never happened without my grandma having the mo those moments with me back then. And how many moments have you lived where people can say, I wouldn't have this moment without that person having that moment with me? And my prayer is, is that you would understand the opportunity you have before you this next year. I don't care how many years that you've uh, haven't done this. I don't care, care how old you are. Don't use any of that to discue. This week could be a week where you lead the next Billy Graham to Jesus. This week could be the next week that you lead the next Samaritan woman to Jesus and she changes a whole family and maybe a whole city. Your moment could lead to the moment. Let's keep going. So Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. So, so basically they're going back and forth. Hey, we're all going to die. Well, actually, first, hey, here's some, here's some clothes. Hope that fixes everything. <laughs> oh, I got a new shirt. It's all good. We're all going to die. But Haley's got new cool clothes. And then after the clothes didn't work, okay, go find out really what's happening. Hey, we're all going to die. Can you go talk to the king? No, it's going to inconvenience me. So sorry. So Mordecai is now replying. And here's what he says. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at this time, you could be quiet uh, at a time like this. Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Stop. That's one of the most challenging verses I'll ever read in my life. I was afraid to plant the church in Wallet Creek. I was afraid to plant a church, just to be honest. Eight out of ten fail. I'd never done it. Didn't feel equipped to do it. And I remember reading this verse and feeling the Lord nudge me you don't plant a church in Walnut Creek, I'll call somebody else to plant a church in Walnut Creek because I'm going to reach Walnut Creek. 
Someone else will answer your calling if you're afraid of it. I don't want anybody else living out my moment. I don't want anybody else walking out my moment. I don't want anybody else walking out my calling. I don't want comfort to keep me from actually the calling on my life. I don't want the pleasures of this world to steal from my purpose that will rejuvenate my soul. Consumerism is killing people left and right, and the thing that will make them come back to life is not them protecting their consumerism, but them actually throwing that out and saying, God, I get it. If I don't answer the call this week, you'll call somebody else, and guess what happens to me? I'm going to die a slow, comfortable death. Well, that's encouraging. Let's keep going. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Sometimes you just got to preach. Goes on to say this. Here we go. Where are we at? Here we go. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made for queen for such a time as this. The CB says for a moment like this. Who knows? Maybe you're alive this week for a moment. Don't miss your moment. This is what Mordecai, Mordecai is coaching her. What I wrote here is your moments need mentors. The Bible is the greatest mentor, of course, but mentors tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. You've heard me say this, if you have a God who agrees with everything you think, you may be your own God. Timothy Keller. But also wrote this, if you have mentors that never challenge you, you may have no mentors, quote Tyler Johnson. Gosh, Timothy Keller is way smarter than me. But if you have a mentor that never challenges you, you probably don't have a mentor. Your moments need mentors. My biggest mistakes was because I didn't have mentors in my life in certain moments. First time I remember, the second time I ever preaching, I'm 22 years old, I'm, I'm super green when it comes to preaching, and I'm preaching about Satan. It comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So I decide I'm going to play a clip. A clip to everybody before service. I don't run it by anybody. I'm 22, I know everything. It's a movie called The Ghost in the Darkness. Has anybody ever seen the movie The Ghost in the Darkness? It's an older movie. If you don't know, it's a rated R movie about two lions who are um, um, uh, killers of people. They literally hunt down and kill people. Based on roughly a true story, they actually had The Ghost in the Darkness in a museum. Uh, Val Kilmer stars in this with Michael Douglas or Kirk Douglas, one of the Douglases. Michael, thank you. Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. And there's this scene where one of the lions goes in the village, hunts down one of the men, and rips him to shreds. It's a Reddit R movie. But I want people to know that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. So I played that clip to start my message. I go, hey, so glad you're here. We're going to show a clip real quick about uh, Satan and how much he wants to destroy your life. Go ahead, hit it. And this lion's like, ah, like, and this guy's like, ah, ah, like grabbing his leg, kills the guy, turns it off, and I go, exactly, Satan wants to do that to your life. And these, these are people in the crowd. And for the whole message, I lost them. It was over. For that moment, I had no mentor. If I would have had just one mentor, hey, I'm thinking about showing this clip. You're, you've communicated for 10 years. They would have gone, no. No moment. No mentor for that moment. Fast forward. You think, this is what's so sad, though. We have moments like that in our life, and then we don't learn from them. I go down to L.A. I'm now in my mid-20s, okay? I asked my wife three times if I should share this story, okay? And she gave me green light all three times. And so if you don't like it, find Rachel, okay? 
if you're like, I can't believe he shared that story, okay? Rachel's right back there. Wave, sweetie. If they hate it, they're going to come talk to you, all right? So I'm 20, 25, 26 years old. Uh, I'm a youth pastor in Burbank, California at a church. and I want to share the power of the Holy Spirit with everybody. But I also want to be hilarious. And so I share all my funny stories. And one is my, literally my first time preaching. I'm going to share all my funny stories, and then I'm going to share about the power of the Holy Spirit. So I share a story about me peeing my pants in a bathroom, whatever, fast forward. But I was like, you know, I really want to get the point across. So I share a story. I'm going to share it with you today. Not that I want to use it in my message, but I want you to understand how bad it was. Is that okay? Can I do that? Rachel said yes. All right. So I share a story when I'm, I think I'm like six years old. I grew up really poor, so we used to have these uh, water fights in our cul-de-sac, about 12 kids. And these 12 kids, we, we'd all have different water guns. And there was this one girl, she was kind of my enemy, her name was Susie, okay? Susie was 12, I was 6, and she had one of those super soaker 1000s. It had a water tank on the back, and it was like this, okay? I mean, just like a fire hose, okay? Some other people had super soaker 50s. I had these little dollar store, okay? And I'm complaining, my mom's like, I got you too. All right? You should be fine. So I go out and, uh, and have this water battle, and I'm literally going around, and Susie's like, Ugh, uh. She's just half beast, okay? She was super mean, bullied me all the time. And so I have these little guns, and I'm trying to get to her, and I'm like, oh, you know? Super Soaker 50s are going across the room. So I'm ticked. I go empty the water guns out. Okay, Rachel. I was like, these, these things suck. They need to be improved. So I pee in the water guns, okay? I fill them up with pee. This is happening right now at Mission Church, all right? Your moments need mentors. So I'm sharing this story on a Sunday. They don't know me that well. So I fill up my water gun with pee, and now I'm like, oh. Now I feel like I'm packing heat, literally, all right? So, sorry. So then I'm just walking around and I'm just shooting everybody. And they're like, ha ha, we got you. Like, no, no, I got you, okay? And I'm, I gotta walk up like this close and I'm, you know, gangster says, you know? So everybody's, I'm just, and again, I'm, I'm a good kid, so I'm only just shooting the shirt, you know, I'm not trying to be ruthless. But then Susie, the last one of the 12. I remember walking up to Susie, and I'm not going to lie, it hurt how hard she was shooting at me. You'd think she would stop, but she didn't. So I'm shooting her shirt. And she's like, ha, 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 ha. And I just get this moment where I just start shooting her in the face. Just. And as I'm shooting her in the face, she's laughing, and she's like, that's not water, that's pee. And I was like, you're darn right. And everybody's like, Tyler's been shooting pee on all of us. So I remember running home, and my mom's like, what did you do? I was like, you gave me the worst gun, so I peed at them so they'd have power. Ah! And my mom's like, get outside. You deserve whatever they're going to do to you. <laughs> and they all hold me down and shoot me with their guns. Oh, no, I got shot with water. But you, like, played up. Oh, it hurts. And then right after that story, I go, and just like that moment when you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was deposited into your soul, and now you're packing heat. And they're like, what? I was the pee pastor for the first year of my life at that church. For a whole year. I have a bunch of people on after service. Pastor Tyler, yeah. I believe that God called you to preach, but I don't think you should ever talk about pee from the platform. <laughs> well, 11 years later, I did it again. 
Rachel. She's the one who did it, okay? She's the one. I want you to catch this real quick. Whenever you go into anything in life, <laughs> I'm going to be able to bring it back, I promise. I feel like we just go in and we're just like, oh, let's just see what happens. You know how many people get hurt in those moments because you didn't just ask a few people on how you should handle it? And you go into work. Maybe even you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know the Lord and you just come at them with all this aggressiveness. Maybe you come to somebody and they've been living with somebody, so you come up and be like, oh, I feel like I'm supposed to tell this person, you know that you were such a sinner. How could da-da-da? I'm like, no, that's not what that, what, what are you doing? All you're doing is causing more church wounds for that person. We love first. We connect. Jesus always connected before he directed. Jesus always had this unbelievable love for people. He had this grace where he would hug them. And they would understand, oh, he loves me so much. He's not judging me, but he's trying to lead me to life. Oh, when you walk into moments, get mentors for your moments. My marriage, I remember Rachel and I being married for a few years, and oh, you need mentors for your marriages. Mordecai's mentoring Esther in this moment. It's an amazing thing. I remember my wife and I, we'd always fight over 50-50. You know, it's those 50-50 marriages. Well, I did this, so now I get to do this. You went out last night, I go out tonight. You spent this much money, I can spend this much money. We watch what you want to watch, we're going to watch what I want to watch. It was this 50-50 marriage, and it was a terrible thing. I'm hanging out with one of my buddies. Is, is Tommy G in the house, Tom Glazer? Where's Tom Glazer at? He's in kids. Oh, he's right there. He's doing a terrible job in kids. He's in kids. <laughs> Your kids are in good hands at Mission Church, all right? So Tommy... And I are golfing, and again, like, I think one reason why we get held back from having moments, uh, mentors for our moments, is we think we have to have this huge formal thing where we have to go, oh, you're married, would you sit down with me for the next two hours and mentor me about my marriage? Or, people you have a relationship with, that you know have fruitful marriages, just ask them a question real quick, and let them actually want to learn, and maybe learn from the well that they have in their life. So me and Tommy are golfing. And I remember telling him about Rachel and I, just like, you know, like our struggle that we're having. And he goes, man, Laura and I did the same thing. But then we realized that 50-50 doesn't work, but 100-100 works. What 100-100 looks like is basically, I'm going to give everything I got every day. And it may not look like 100 because maybe work was hard or the day was hard or I just maybe fighting something. But each spouse, trust the other spouse, I'm giving 100. And you don't keep score anymore, but you just come home and say, I'm going to give my spouse 100 and not even worry about anything else. And when both spouses are focused on giving 100, man, the climate of the marriage changes. And Rachel and I, I remember us having this conversation, and we just switched it. We just 100 to 100. And man, when you're going 50-50, your marriage is kind of running on 50%. But you run 100 to 100, your marriage runs on a different kind of thing. You assume the best. Your spouse is tired and says, it's just not in me today. I, don't, I can't go on an activity. I'm just kind of tired from the week. Your spouse doesn't go, well, you, well we went on an activity yesterday for you. No, he goes, I get it. And what happens when your spouse is always pouring in you you can't help but just want to pour back. You need mentors for your marriages. I don't know how many moments have been missed and how many moments have been mishandled because we just didn't ask a mentor. Man, small groups aren't around just so you hang out with people. I believe you're going to find great mentors in small groups this next uh, uh, season, the next seven uh, uh, weeks of the small group quarter. If you don't have a mentor, it's nobody's fault but yourself. If you don't have people in your life to speak in your life, it's nobody's fault but yourself. Find them. Pursue them. And be suspicious of the people you click with. Don't tell somebody they're going to be your mentor when they don't feel called to be your mentor either. You, you're mine. Uh, what? 
Let some time go. Let the Lord show that. Sound good? So Esther has mentors for a moment. Let's keep going. So he challenges her. Doesn't let her get away with what's inconvenient. He says, hey, here's the deal. You try to save your life, you'll lose your life. But if you're willing to lose your life, you may save everyone's life. Does this sound familiar at all? Goes on to say, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. It's one of the greatest moments in all of the Bible, if you ask me. Go and gather. I mean, this, this young Jewish girl, beautiful and charming, she starts to just, boom, step into her moment. Okay, we're going to do this, and here's how we're going to do it. This is a wise woman right here. She goes on, she goes, here's what we're going to do. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. She knows that there is power in prayer. Oh, we about to do this? Let's start fasting and praying. She get, creates a game plan. Do not eat or drink for three days, uh, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, though it is inconvenient, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Another translation I love is, if I must perish, I must perish. Three things to learn from Esther's moment at that moment where she didn't miss her moment is three. One is, for you not to miss your moment, is that you need to have the revelation of a servant. You need to have this eye-opening moment in your life, the revelation, I believe, of a servant. And here's what I wrote down. She realized that she was not here to enjoy the palace. She was here to serve a nation. You are not here to use the city. You are here to serve the city. You are not here to use the church. You're here to serve the church. And when you have that revelation moment, you come to church saying, I get it. I'm going to lose my preferences so somebody else can get saved with Jesus. I'm going to lose my time and come serve so other people can actually have eternal time with Jesus. It's an amazing revelation moment. But a lot of people, oh, they think everything is for them. You think the barrier is for you. You think the finances are for you. You think church service is for you. This is a bad context the way your mind is working right now. This is consumer mindset. You will never even get to your moment if you're on the road of consumerism. The only way you get there is getting on the road of serving. Stop using the city and start serving the city. Stop using the people around you and start serving the people around you. People always complain about the next generation. I'm barely in it, but I am. All right, I'm a millennial, all right? Um, but they complain, oh, the millennials, they don't understand work ethic. They're entitled. It's because they got a participant medal. Probably played a part. Probably. I didn't like them. I was competitive. But I think the biggest thing that's happened in this next generation, if I'm just being honest even with myself, that I had to learn was we teach young people all the time that it's all about them. We center our lives around kids. And we teach them this mindset that they're actually here so we will serve them instead of actually, you want great kids? Teach them to serve. You want, literally, you want great kids? Teach them to serve. Don't teach them that they're the most valuable thing on the planet, which they are. But if they don't understand serving, they'll miss their moment. My life changed when I realized that I was not here to consume, but I was here to pour my life out as a drink offering. Church will change for you when you realize that you need to bring your own chair. When you need to bring your own, uh, I would say, relational uh, uh, aggressiveness. Nobody says hi to me. Man, oh, I pray that our church, you get way too many highs at our church. I pray that we'd just be different that way because we see ourselves as servants, not as ones waiting to receive, but actually waiting to give. 
eager to give. So she has a revelation moment. So so this is the revelation of a servant moment. The next part of this moment is is the actions of a servant. The actions of a servant. I love what she says. And I just wrote this, our testimony must be louder than my title. Jesus' testimony was loud. Oh, care for others. Love your life to save your life. Love your life, lose your life. Lose your life, save your life. And what I mean by that is there has to be a season in your life where you really do put others in front of you and see what happens. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, I remember him sharing a story that literally kind of shaped even the one person at a time in my mind. This was before the one person at a time, but it's an amazing story. He basically shared that there was this big wig in New York that was a boss, and this lady started coming to Tim Keller's church, and he wanted to know how she came. And The story basically goes about like this. Tim Keller shares this. The boss went in to a board meeting, and the company made a terrible mistake, and it was this woman's fault. And the boss could have easily thrown her under the bus, fired her, and looked like the best thing on the planet. But the boss owned all of it and walked in and said, this is all on me, nobody else's fault. I'm going to learn from this, we're going to fix this, and we're going to move forward. This loss is not going to define our company, we're going to move forward in this loss. And this woman walks up to her boss and says, why would you do that? Why, why did you do this? Well, it's just, you know, it's what we're supposed to do. No, I, I worked in this uh, company for a long time. That's not what bosses do. Why? Why? She was persistent and finally said, you want to know why? I'm a Christian. Jesus took the blame for me, so now I want to take the blame for others. Jesus took the hit for me, and so I want to take the hit for others. And she looked at him, and she goes, what? And he goes on to explain Jesus. She goes, where do you go to church? goes on to tell her, I go to Redeemer Press. And that woman, because she saw somebody's testimony louder than their title, decided to come to Redeemer Press because somebody took the hit. Basically, it was actually Christ-like for her, and it was an amazing moment. And because of that amazing moment, she came to Redeemer Press and get saved. Some of you go like, I don't understand why my employees or my friends or da-da-da is not coming to church because they haven't seen Jesus yet. Why would they be sure you to come? When they start seeing Jesus in you, they want to see all of Jesus. The actions of a servant. And then the language of a servant. Servants talk different. If I must die, I must die. Servants never actually go to a bad service. Did you know that? Servants never go to a bad church service because they're a part of it. And so what they say is like, how was church today? Amazing. It was awesome. Because, and here's the reason why. You have a moment where you were serving. You're like, man, I remember setting up this or doing this. This is an amazing moment. When servants start serving, it changes church service for you. When you start seeing people, you're serving a small group. It just changes it. I'm going to finish with this, and we're going to be done. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Forgive me for the longer message, but we didn't have two services, so. <laughs> I won't do it again till next Sunday. All right? I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's just a longer message. Forgive me. But does Esther remind you of anybody else? Anybody else in the Bible does Esther remind you of? I'm going to go with a guy named Jesus who was fully man, fully God. Esther left the palace for the people. Jesus left the palace. He left heaven for people. Esther says, if I must die, I must die. Jesus says, I must die. Jesus is the better Esther. I want to read you this real quick in Mark 10. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were asking basically to sit at the right hand. They wanted a bunch of stuff. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, 
and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Everybody say different. Come on, we're going to be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Everybody say servant. Don't miss your moment. Here we go. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came to, uh, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, my moment is me giving my life away. Nobody's getting away in my moment. Goes on to say in Mark 8, I want you to catch this real quick. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and does the opposite of what Mordecai does. Peter took him aside and said, began to reprimand him for saying such things. Peter didn't want his friend to leave. Peter, Peter wanted his agenda, not actually God's agenda. And what I wrote very simply is Peter is the opposite of Mordecai. This is what happens when kids lead their parents. This is what happens when people haven't even been mentored or trying to mentor others. Peter, this is not your moment to mentor. This is your moment to learn. And I think a lot of us need to learn more than we actually mentor. But when we only want to mentor, oh, it hurts. Goes on, he, uh, he says this, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter, get away from me, Satan. If you have anybody in your life that is telling you to do less for Jesus, that is not probably of God. I'm just going to be honest. If somebody is pushing you towards comfort, that's probably not of God. That's, that's, again, I'm, I, I don't think I'm preaching tough gospel tonight, but I feel like some people need to hear some truth tonight, okay? Goes on. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Man, I want to see things from God's point of view. Then calling the crowd. This is amazing. I never saw this. So you think this is just like some little moment the disciples are having? No. Then he calls to the crowd. So he's calling to Mission Church. This is what Jesus says. So he calls to the crowd and he says this. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, Esther, you're going to lose your life. Jesus is the better Mordecai. He's the better Esther. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. I pray for every single one of us in the room that we would believe that promise of what Jesus said. If you would actually give up the world, then you would get everything. It's a scary promise to trust, but man, if we actually did it. He goes on to say, But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, we don't got anybody ashamed of this church. We are proud of the bachelor. We're proud of Jesus. Come on. In these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you have a God who agrees with you, you may be your own God. If you have a mentor and never challenges you, you probably don't have any mentors. And if you have a pastor that doesn't point you to Jesus, you don't have a good pastor. And I want to have a Mordecai and Esther moment with you. And My heart every Sunday is to point you to Jesus. Sit. Lift up the name of Jesus. And I believe that if you actually make Jesus the first in your life, the center of your life, oh, it's going to change everything. So I'm going to pastor real quick. I'm going to tell you non-negotiables of the Bible. And if you're not doing them, do them this week. You ready? God must be first in everything. When you go to work, put God first. 
Invite them into work. When you go to take the kids to school, invite them to be a part of the process. I'm not asking you to go be a monk or be Amish. I'm, all I'm asking you is every moment of your life, Jesus should be at the center. Find a way. He can be a part of everything. He's God. If you are compartmentalizing your Christianity, it is killing your walk. People must be a priority. People aren't a priority in your life. Kingdom relationships aren't a priority in your life. You are missing it. As your pastor, start prioritizing relationships. Start prioritizing lost people in your life. Write down five people you don't know the Lord and just be like, I'm going to get them. Write a priority list down of people. Another one, you must share the gospel with people. This is not, this is a non-negotiable. I read the most oh, upsetting stat. Over 90% of the church doesn't share Jesus with anybody in, uh, in two years. Thomas Rainier wrote a book recently on evangelism, and it pierced my heart. Two years, 90% of the people in this room is what it's saying is that they'll never actually share Jesus with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Why is the church dying in America? I don't know. Maybe that's one of the reasons. 90% of the people in the church have been shut up by the enemy. They feel ill-equipped. They feel like they're not supposed to do it. One of the greatest ways to share the gospel with somebody is just tell them about what Jesus did in your life. One of the greatest ways to share the gospel with somebody is inviting them to church. And my last four, four things that you need to start doing more if you're not doing already, ready? Start forgiving. Jesus didn't die on a cross and forgive all your sins so you could forgive some people's sins. Come on. Jesus did not die on a cross and forgive everything you did so you could pick and choose what you want to forgive or what other people did. You better start forgiving everyone and anyone every day. This is a mark of a great Christian. What kind of community can you be in if you fall, but you know people that, oh, our church community, if you fall, oh, we're going to rally around you. We're not going to shoot you. I pray that forgiveness would mark our church because bottom line, we're going to fail. The worst community to live in is the community that you're worried about saying the wrong thing. After church, be like, I can't believe he said that during announcements. So the next time you go for announcements, oh my gosh, I don't want to say anything because I remember that one person was super sensitive because I made that one joke about being a water gun. Oh my gosh, they're going to leave. If that offended you, start forgiving me now, okay? Come on. Another thing you need to start doing, start giving. Do you know that Jesus talked about how you steward your stuff 25% of the time in the gospel? What gets to us must get through us. You are not called to consume. When he gives you love, give love. When he gives you time, give time. When he gives you finances, give finances. If you are holding on to things, this is holding you back. You got to start giving. Start serving. Those who serve will be refreshed. And if you're already serving, keep serving. And last but not least, start loving people like crazy. The way that I judge my week, simply this. Did I fall in love with God more this week? And did I love people this week? That's it. Because that's what Jesus told me was the most important thing to do. So this week, just love people. Love them. And again, everybody has different love languages. The way you can love somebody could be an encouraging text. The way you love somebody is getting coffee with them. The way you love somebody is maybe calling them up and just uh, and t- and tell them sorry for what you did. The way you love somebody is maybe being generous with them. Whatever it is, you know the people. God gives you discernment. Pray, how do I love people this week? Again, these are things that should be at the top of your list. 
And we can go a whole week not loving God, not loving people, and we've missed it. Don't miss your moment. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't miss your moment.